This is The Widow Podcast and I am Karen Sutton, The Widow Coach. I'll be supporting you through the loss of your life partner so you can find a more positive way through your grief. I want to give you hope after loss and to know that when you are ready, you can create a meaningful life for yourself with the help of me, Karen Sutton and The Widow Podcast. Welcome back to the Widow Podcast. In today's episode, I've got a very lovely lady coming to join us to share her wisdom, her story, and to give you some hope for your journey. I have got Louise Blythe with me today. Louise is a widow, a mum, and an author. Louise has written a book called Hope is Coming, A True Story of Grief and Gratitude. It really is a fantastic read. I have to say, I've read half of the book and I'm hooked. <laughs> I wanted to have read the whole book by the time I spoke to Louise, but uh, but life takes over sometimes. But from what I've read, I, I highly recommend. So we'll talk more about that in a bit. But Louise, welcome. Thank you so much for coming and joining us. Thank you for having me, Karen. I'm excited Aww. to be here. Oh, it's lovely. It's so lovely. So I guess we should start at the beginning. Um, and that was with, with George, your, your late husband. Um, tell us a little bit about George. He sounds like such a, a wonderful character from what you've written in the book about him. Yeah, so George was... A larger than life character and actually so much of his character is still so present in our lives he died in 2016 so we're coming into our seventh year without him and um he's still very present in his life which i think sort of speaks volumes really in terms of who he was as a character and an individual so george was very forward thinking very um capable of making his thoughts and feelings known he was charismatic he was the kind of guy that sort of would light up a room genuinely when he walked into it people would always leave knowing who he was and often I would be just George's wife um rather than people knowing who I always was because he definitely I think took the front and center stage um when we used to go places together as a couple yeah I certainly got that from you um in, in the book you know when you talk about when you first met him um y- you know just the the way he that that inner confidence it almost feels yeah. like he had like he was just very comfortable in his own skin very self-assured was new people knew how to to be around people how to make people feel comfortable safe yeah uh, and and i guess accepted for who who they were in in that moment without any preconceived ideas from him and he he sounds like he had a wonderful outlook on life as well yeah I think in many ways his outlook was wise beyond his years so he died when he was 34 and still now you know I think about the wisdom that he had that I'm accruing as I go into my next decade of life without him And I think, blimey, you know, how did he know that? Like, how did he have that wisdom? And it was just sort of in his bones. Don't get me wrong. He could also be extremely mature and silly. And lots of his friends from school and university have all sorts of bonkers stories about all of the escapades that he got up to and the Mr. Um, He found himself in. But equally, he did have this outlook on life that was was beyond his years at times. That's so lovely. So lovely. So... 
what happened? When did George sort of start to to feel unwell? When did that become obvious to you guys? Yeah, so I am a cancer widow. Um, and it's interesting because Karen and I had the chat before the podcast about, you know, were you expecting the loss or were you not expecting the loss? And I definitely fall into the camp of, you know, knowing that George was going to die was something I had time to prepare for. Did that make it any easier? I'm not sure. But equally, that was the the path that we walked. And George was diagnosed in the back end of December 2015. So just before Christmas. And the moment in our lives when he was diagnosed was we just moved house to the place that we thought was our forever home. We'd done a big relocation from the south of the country back to the Midlands, which is where I'm originally from. And he was doing incredibly well in his career. I was doing well in my career. We'd had two children and we felt like we had the world at our feet. And when he was diagnosed, it came as such a shock to the system. He had been poorly and we knew there was something not quite right, but we never in a thousand years thought that he had a stage four cancer, which was what he did end up having. Um, And it just came out of nowhere, that diagnosis. It really, really did. How did you both react to that? diagnosis with they different responses from from both of you I think our responses were the same but different I mean I think in all relationships there's a level of perspective and values that you share but also probably personality traits that are slightly different so I was always in our relationship the person who was probably more of a pessimist and George was probably more of an optimist, even though I actually am an optimist. It, it is just that compared to him, I was slightly more pessimistic. So, I mean, his response was almost to kind of silence what was happening immediately. And there was no question around whether or not he would ever get better. It was, I've not even got cancer. He didn't want to sort of even talk about having cancer and use that word. He wanted to use a different word. He wanted to have a project name. And his response immediately was, well, I'm going to beat this and I'll get better. Whereas I think for me, I was, I was literally holding the baby. Our youngest son was eight months. I'd only just stopped breastfeeding. And I was thinking, okay, I really want to buy into this hypnotic self-belief that you have, that you're going to get better. But equally, I was sat in the same doctor's appointments where we were told, you know, he had a 7% chance of living longer than five years. And I'm sat there going, oh my gosh, does this, does this mean, you know, the worst of the worst case scenarios? And what was hard initially was I felt that I wasn't able to process that because I had to be there for him in the belief that he was going to get better. So I had to kind of almost park and suffocate all of those fears and feelings because I needed to be able to be there for him and support him in his belief that he would get better and beat cancer. And did that do you think that helped you in terms of it gave you something to focus on? Or do you think there was a part of you that became a bit resentful because that wasn't your truth and, and you wanted to talk about what you were feeling? So if I'm really honest, Karen, I don't think I had time to even be resentful. So our whole story was 11 months from in terms of from George's cancer diagnosis to his death. So we had this period of time where he was diagnosed and we waited to start treatment. And then once you start treatment, you buy into the concept that 
it is going to make you better because otherwise how can you go through some of the really grueling treatments and surgeries that you have to go through for cancer if you're not standing on the belief that this is going to make me be better and I think I very quickly then fell into the same mindset of you know we will beat this he is going to get better and we actually had a period of time in the summer of 2017 where George um, was really really well he actually rode um, from London to Paris he was a really keen bike rider he was kind of completing all of these fundraising challenges and he seemed like he genuinely was taking on the world and so I began to utterly believe the truth of well he's right if anyone's going to beat this it's, it's going to be him and we were in the place where he just had this huge huge surgery to remove a huge chunk of his liver called a liver resection and we were at a point where he was officially cancer-free and we were kind of going, okay, maybe maybe this is it. Maybe we are going to be the people that are the very small statistic that somehow seem to move through this horror. And it was then eight weeks later that his cancer came back with a vengeance. And it was at that point then that we really had to face into the truth around, okay, this is not going to be the ending we want it to be. And we sat through the appointments, you know, where you get handed the box of tissues and told, we can't cure you. We're not sure how long you've got left. And that's really essentially, my book doesn't begin in that place because I told the story of how George and I met and how we fell in love. But in many regards, that was really the beginning of our story in terms of then having to accept, okay, the person who I love more than life itself, who is my God, who is the center of my universe, is going to die, and I'm going to be 33, and I'm going to be left here alone with his two kids. Oh my gosh. Did you have that conversation together? Did you sit down and and say that out loud to each other? You know, you're, you're going to die, George saying, I'm going to die. What's that going to look like for you and the, the boys moving forward? So we did have that conversation eventually, but it was literally in the last few days of his life when I think he knew and had finally reached an acceptance that it was the end. Um, but when we were initially told that there was not a cure for his disease, it was one of those really strange moments and I've had a few moments in my life where I've kind of thought this is a bit like a movie definitely getting married twice which I can now add to my list and having babies and graduating from universities is like sort of major life moments where you feel sort of like okay I've got to be com completely present in this because this is this is going to be a moment that shapes and changes the rest of my life and and we had that moment where we were sat down and we were told you know, they couldn't cure George. And I was the one who was extremely emotional. He was very stoical. But then we went home and I remember we went home and we built a chest of drawers that needed to be built for um, our son's bedroom. And then you sort of then lull yourself into this false sense of security of, okay, well, I've just been told he's going to die, but how do they know when he's going to die? And actually maybe he won't die as soon as they think he's going to die. And actually at the moment he's still okay so I've just got to look to today and stand on that so in the very beginning of knowing that news we did definitely not have that conversation and that then began to manifest in me as sort of frustration and anger and resentment a little bit um 
And that it was only really when he was in this place of pure, beautiful acceptance of what was going to happen to him next, which is part of the story. And I am mindful that I've just used the word beautiful around the death of someone who was 34 from a horrible disease. It was beautiful, which is why I wrote the book. And it was only in those moments then that we had the conversation. And they were really, really powerful conversations. And I'm really deeply thankful and grateful that we got to have them. What prompted those conversations? Who who, who opened up that, that door for you to have them? That's a really good question because there was not a um there was not a moment that went by where we didn't not talk about things but there were often moments where we just weren't talking about the big stuff and initially when George became really really sick he was too sick to even enter into conversations which was also incredibly hard and I had so much stuff that I wanted to talk to him about and the very premise of my book actually was born out of the fact that I was seeing a therapist at the time and she said to me, look, do you have a journal? And I said, no, I didn't, I didn't even know what journaling was back then. She said, but do you like writing? And I was like, well, yeah, I suppose so. Because, you know, I did English at uni. I kind of quite like reading books. She said, right, if you can write down how you're feeling, write. And I said, well, that seems a bit strange. She said, well, what about if you write letters to George? So I started, whilst George was in the hospital, writing letters to him, which formed part of the sort of middle of my book. It's kind of this these love letters that I was writing to him as he was dying. And some days I'd sit and read to him what I'd written. Other days he was far too poorly. But I think I was sort of moving to the space of being more and more open. And then we had this profound spiritual moment of enlightenment, is how I would describe it. and a door did open and it was a door to a sort of unveiling and understanding of a larger, bigger spiritual world that was around us. And it was that enlightenment for both of us, not just for me, that allowed the people for us to be able to have the conversations that up until that point, we'd been so fearful to have in a really beautiful and really meaningful and a really loving way. I think that's such a powerful message because, you know, I speak to a lot of widows um, that I work with and it comes up, it does come up that, you know, when you have somebody that is, is dying from an illness, the the conversations that both people tend to want to have but are too scared to bring up because it, it feels wrong, it feels uncomfortable and it feels scary. But time and time again, I hear how intimate, how reassuring, how connecting those conversations are and how loving because they are, aren't they? They're really intimate, yeah. powerful conversations yeah. to have. And if you can open your heart to, to having them, it, it gives you something. It, it brings you some, some peace, some, some love, some connection, um, way bigger than than I think anyone could probably imagine yeah agreed but it is a really scary thing to do because I think when you are the carer for the person who has you know been given the death sentence which sounds like a quite crude thing to say but it's the truth you know you you almost feel sort of like you've got to take their lead and actually my encouragement on those you know on those thoughts and in that situation is that your marriage and your relationship will 
that person dies, which is a horrible, horrible thing to get your head around and understand. But then equally within that, you then have to be able to have the authority and the power to sort of stand on that and go, well, this is going to change for me as much as it's going to change for you. So therefore, I do have the authority to be able to have that conversation with you because whatever your spiritual beliefs are about what happens after death, and we could have a whole podcast about that. And, I, you know, I love those kind of chats, you know, to be able to have those conversations is extremely life-giving for both the person I think that is going to die and the person who will stay a little while longer. It's definitely given me so much freedom to live out this next part of my life. And interestingly, I know we were having a chat before about relationships after, you know, after the loss of a spouse and I have gone on to remarry and I do genuinely think that some of the reason why I had the, the courage to do that was because George gave me his blessing in that before he died. And people have even said to me, you know, gosh, I can't, I can't imagine standing and having that conversation with my husband or wife. And I said, yeah, but you can't probably even understand having to, um, have to ha- having to have that conversation so mm. it's yeah yeah it is you can't put yourself in that position can you when when no when, no. when you're not there and 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 it, you are living out a life for others that you can't understand you can't connect to and you can't no. fathom because it's it's too big and, no. and you wouldn't expect anyone to no you you talked about George having a beautiful death which I think is really lovely. And I really believe in this, you know, I've been with people, I wasn't with Simon, Simon died suddenly, Um, but I was a nurse before and and a midwife. And I I have been with people at end of life and it can be beautiful. It can be meaningful, but that's an uncomfortable thought, I think, for a lot of people. So how, how does that look for you and George when you say, having a beautiful death. What was yeah. that for you? Well, it's so interesting because I had only very recently, you know, prior to George's death, just given birth. And I remember vividly when we found out George was going to die. I think at times people must have found me slightly headstrong and almost a little bit, I suppose, they were probably thinking, I can't believe she's just said that because I am a bit of a challenger and I will probably say the things that people often are thinking but don't dare to say. That's who I am as a person, which has its benefits and its disadvantages. And I'm kind of fully aware of that. But I remember sitting and going, well, you know, do we not get a death plan? And and the, the nurse kind of saying to me, what? And I said, well, I've just given birth, you know, and I had this whole birth plan. So do we not get to do that? you know, when he dies. And and they just sort of looked at me and laughed and kind of said, there's still so much work to be done in this area. And since George's death, you know, I've discovered, you know, there is a whole group of people who are super passionate about, you know, just this, which is kind of how do I die well? And it sounds like such a morbid conversation, but I, I just feel really passionate about it because I kind of think, well, we all know it's the only certainty in our lives. Like I know that I will die. And that is the only thing I know about any of my future. So why would I not, if I want to go on great holidays and have, you know, great friendships and great relationships, why would I not want my death to be the best possible death it could be? And it might not be that because I absolutely recognize that lots of it may be outside of my control, but I even joke with my kids about it now. And I'm like, you know, if I'm dying, 
don't don't get them to bring me back to life like i just want you to worship me into heaven like that is what i want like if it's time for me to go i'm ready and i want you to take me there and actually in terms of what happened with george's death like i i wasn't in that place so just to be really clear like i I wasn't someone who was passionate about death and dying before living through this experience i was absolutely terrified i'd never been with someone who had died i'd had experience of a grandparent dying much behind closed doors and not something I'd been confronted with and sat with and watched the changes in a body around. Um, So there was a whole kind of learning journey on that that I had to go through. But also I kind of just thought, but this is just, this is just George. This is the person I love. Like he's watched me give birth. He's seen me, you know, in my most intimate moments. Why can't I let him, you know, see why am I so scared to see him in this moment too and it can be a moment of real love if you can find a way to to park a fear and I think for me the big the big thing that allowed me to park the fear and I know we sort of mentioned this earlier was this absolutely huge spiritual encounter that we had in George's hospital room that led me to a place of honest unfaltering belief that heaven is a real place that people go to which I'm now mindful that people are going oh no you know she's one of those she's off a rocker you know because genuinely that I never ever used to think that or feel that I kind of wanted to believe in it and thought it was maybe a magical fairy tale place we told people about to make us feel better but with everything that I saw and witnessed I have never been more convinced of anything ever in my life So then I kind of went, okay, well, if this is the truth and there is a God and there is a heaven, there is this whole spiritual world that's totally unseen, all I can do is be completely accepting of it for myself and for George and see where this takes us. And by being completely accepting of it, it led us to this just beautiful death. Like George was so at peace. He was so full of love. He was, you know, he was so full of what I would call as a Christian, the Holy Spirit. Like he just was a perfect piece. And that's all I would ever want for anyone's death, you know, like just, yeah, perfect piece. So did he, did he take on these um, beliefs? I, I say take on, I don't know whether that's the right term, but did he discover this, this spiritual world that, at yes. the same time as you? Yes. He probably, dis- he's discovered it slightly earlier than I did. And without, without giving too many spoilers into my book, I tell the story of how this happened because essentially it was so ridiculous, Karen, so dumbfounding and so unexpected because I wasn't someone, I wasn't like someone who'd been brought up to be religious. I didn't go to sometimes go at Christmas. I used to genuinely look at people who believed in God and go, that's nice that you've got that imaginary friend. Brilliant. Good for you. What are you all bothered about? You know, crack on, like, stop, stop praying, start doing. Like, that genuinely would have been how I would have described myself. And I, in a moment of madness, or spiritually, you could say, in a moment of listening, decided that it would be a good thing to get someone who I didn't know, who was a complete stranger, to come and pray with us. But that was coupled with all sorts of other things that I was doing. I was on the hunt to make my husband's death be as beautiful and perfect as it could be so I literally was on a mission to leave no stone unturned and I I talk about this in the book I talk about how I 
genuinely looked into the Dignitas Clinic in Switzerland, how I was contacting kind of new age healers. Like uh, I was, I was looking under all the rocks and I wasn't sort of like, okay, no, that's not for me. I genuinely probably was the most open I'd ever been spiritually. Cause I was like, okay, that looks good. I'll have a look under that rock and I'll go over here and I'll do this. And so then I get this message from this girl who says, you know, I'll come and pray with you, even though she didn't know us. And I, I explain the story of how that happens in the book, because that's a story in itself. She comes and prays. And we have this moment where I'm sat there going, oh gosh, okay, she's saying all these words and I don't understand it. And I'm not connecting with it. And this is really weird. And it's just not really for me. But equally, simultaneously, was feeling this like spiritual draw into this piece that was a total feeling and I was like resisting it you know I was resisting it because I, I kept thinking I've got to be here like, I've got to be present because I don't know who this person is and you know I've got to be here for George but George clearly didn't resist it and then what happened after we had this moment of prayer was I, I said goodbye to this girl and had this really uncomfortable moment of kind of like I don't know what you just did there but that was great thanks for that and, and almost expected her to ask me for some money but she never ever did um she went home I went home, George was in hospital and I kind of thought, blimey, I don't know what she just did, but she definitely did something and she did it by praying. So I'm going to try and pray. And I write, I, I write a prayer to God and, and my prayer, my very first prayer to God is in, in the book. And honestly, I experience people as basically Bridget Jones meets God. Cause I'm kind of like, dear God, is that, are you a man? Is that even who you are? I don't even know. But like, I need to speak to you because so you've just done something and I've got to try and figure out if you're real. And this, if this is like what I think it is. So I write this prayer kind of going, yeah, this is me. I'm not really sure who you are. You know, if you can make me thinner, like make me thinner, all this kind of stuff, go to bed. And uh, there's a few coincidences that I won't give spoilers around that are in the book. And then walk back into the hospital the next morning. And George has gone from this place of being in such pain such anxiety, such fear, real physical illness. He was being, he was vomiting a lot. He couldn't get comfortable. He couldn't sleep. To laying in his bed with his arms outstretched in like quite a holy, what you would imagine to be sort of like quite a holy position and just sort of going to me, all the pain, it's just gone. And honestly, my first thought at that moment was not, oh, thank you, God. Genuinely, it was, oh, what have they given him now? He's off his head on drugs. He's had loads of morphine. He's on opiate-based drugs. He's, he's, he's lost the plot. Um, so I went and wandered down to the nurses and said, look, what's he had? He seems to be a little bit off his head. And they just said to me, he's not, he's not had anything. He's not had any medicine. He, he's literally, and they checked and double-checked his roster because I said, but he says that he's feeling no pain. He's not felt like this for weeks and months. So then I, I kind of couldn't quite get my head around it. And I walked back in the room and he said to me, I don't know what, I don't know what you have done as in to me, I don't know what you have done in terms of what you did when you prayed, but you, it's all gone. Everything's gone. And I'm full of light and I'm full of love and I'm full of hope. And at that moment, I, oh, I'm getting goosebumps telling you this story now. I dropped down on my knees in this hospital room because I was literally like, I don't know what this is. I don't know what is happening. But like, thank you so much for, for what you've done, because I, I, I don't even know how I've done this, but I need more of it. And I want more of this because this is the only thing that's going to get us through. And that was the beginning of my story of 
faith. Wow. And did, did George stay pain-free until he died? Yeah. Yeah. He stayed pain-free. He was in this place of just like beauty and wonder. Like the nurses were coming to see him on their days off. They, he had this like magnetic draw around him. And it's funny because people who didn't have a faith could really sense it and feel it too. So my brother is the biggest atheist going and my brother came to see George and say goodbye. And he stepped outside afterwards and he said to me, I feel like I've just had a, an audience with the Dalai Lama. Like I don't, I don't know what, I don't know what's going on. And I, and I was just there like, going, I know, I know. Right. Because isn't it amazing? It's all real. And, and there's been times and there still are times story incredibly hard to digest because it's, insane that I lost the love of my life and gained this perspective simultaneously. And I, and I found it very hard to process at times. Um, because obviously then people also ask the question, which is, okay, so if you believe in a God, then why do you think that he took George from you? Which is, you know, an obvious question to ask. But then equally, my, my stance back on that is, okay, but if you believe in a God and you believe in a spiritual world, I, I then have the mindset of this is just the hotel. This is the waiting room. You know, the next part is is really where we're, where we're headed and what we're waiting for. So if I believe and stand with that mindset, death's not to be feared. Like that's just the part of what happens next. And I've just got to accept it. And I have to live my life here to the best, most fulfilling way that I can in the expectation and the waiting of one day I'll die and go to that place too. And it sounds really simple when I say it like that because it's not, and it's hard to grieve and be a widow and a young mum who's a widow. But that's what I have stood on. And that is what's got me to where I am now. I think it's amazing. You, you know, I, I don't, I don't think like that personally. I, I don't, I don't know. But what I do know is, is that I have maybe developed different beliefs since Simon has died. And yes. I've, created something for me because I don't have anything factual to base this upon like you probably wouldn't say you've created yours you've you've discovered it maybe um but yes I feel like I've created a truth for me that brings me some comfort and I couldn't I couldn't sit here and say to you I know I mean you're very I know this is what happens I've seen it I felt it I, I know it and, and you're very self-assured in that, yeah. which is amazing. And, and I'm not here to argue that point with you at all. Cause I, I don't have, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. And I understand that because I definitely did not used to have that. And if I'd heard someone like me speaking, I would have literally been like, yeah. what? Yeah. what? <laughs> like, seriously? Are you speaking for real? Uh, yeah, but I am. <laughs> do you know what I think is important? Whatever you do, is find something that brings you that peace, that love, that comfort, a belief system that gives you permission to move forward in life, to create something good for yourself, to know that your person is at peace, that maybe you'll meet again one day, you'll have a story to tell them. Whatever that looks like for you, run with it. Because it's powerful, I think, in our journeys. It is. It's so interesting. So I discovered this morning, and I don't know if you'll know this, but the day that we're recording this podcast is the anniversary of Coretta Scott King's death. So Coretta Scott King was obviously the wife of Martin Luther King. She survived him by 
a number of decades. So she didn't die until 2006. And she, I was listening to a little sort of meditation prayer app that I do every day. And she was on the prayer uh, meditation app this morning. I was like, oh my gosh, this is not a coincidence. But she said, and her words were in an interview, I never thought that death would give me fulfillment, but death has made me look at life so differently and made me know that I need to be fully fulfilled in what I do because that is what counts. And I don't care for finer things. I don't care for fancy clothes. And, you know, I I need to find the fulfillment. And I think that if you allow what death can teach you to really linger in your bones, it can give you a perspective of life that can be so fulfilling because you once you look death in the eye, you've, you've basically faced your biggest fear. Then you kind of go, okay, what's really important? What's really, really important in life? And if you can build your life after the loss of your loved one on those truths, you will 100% have a super fulfilled life. Will you miss the person that you love? Oh my gosh, absolutely. Will that go on forever? Of course it will, because love is just like that. And grief is love in reverse, right? And you never, ever stop loving your person. But you can be fulfilled. And I remember thinking after George died, gosh, I have a choice. This is either going to make me or it's going to break me. And I remember thinking it is not going to break me because I'm not going to let it break me for my kids. It cannot break me because if it breaks me, it breaks them. And it was also my love for them that kind of made me go, no, I'm going to find a way to make this be wonderful, even though it's awful. It's kind of like the, um, have you ever watched the film? Um, it's a beautiful life. Um, is it, is it called it's a beautiful life? The film where the, where the son and the father in the concentration camp in Italy and he makes it all a game. It won loads of Oscars. It's a brilliant film. We'll have to put it in the notes of this widow podcast. Definitely. Watch it. But it's, um, it's, it's basically the dad takes his kid to a concert. Well, they get taken to a concentration camp but he makes it be a game. And the kid thinks he's basically at Disneyland, even though people are dying. And, and it's, and that's the power of, of parenting in adversity as well. And that, and it's, I remember holding on to that film and thinking, right, I've got to be like that man. Like I've got to make this be really fun for my kids. And I'm going to show them that we'll be sad, but we'll, we'll choose happy. Look, I've got my mug actually that says I choose happy. Do you know what? I, I agree with yeah. everything that, that you say there. And, and sorry, I've forgotten Martin Luther King's wife's name. She's called Coretta. Oh, I didn't Coretta. know that until today either. But like, what a Amazing. What woman. And I think you're right. We do have a choice. We, we, we all have a choice. And I'm so passionate about this because a lot of people say everything happens for a reason. I'm not sure where I sit with that. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure things happen for a reason. However, I I do believe if we are open to the possibilities, the learnings that are presented to us in, in life situations, we can take a lot from them and we can discover a way forward in life that's very different to how it was before and and we can view the world through a very different lens and it's almost it's almost like having a blank canvas isn't it you, you know when somebody you love dies yes. and this is you know if somebody said this to me a week after Simon died I'm not sure how well it would have been received you probably would have punched them in the face I mean I think I probably would yeah yeah it's almost like somebody goes right 
that bit's gone. That part of your life, what are you going to paint? What are you going to draw? It's your choice. You know, you can just paint it all gray. You can leave it blank. It's up to you. Or you can find the boldest, brightest colors and paint a picture of dreams. And, and yes, I know everyone yes. has different resources in life. People have, you know, they live in different places and, and what's available to them is different. But you know, if you're determined enough, if, if you are determined to go, this isn't going to break me, which was very much how I felt after Simon died. Like, I am not going to allow this to define mine and the girl's life in a negative way. Like, no, I, I'm going to figure yeah. it out. I don't know how, but I am. And and that's a choice. Yeah. And once you've made that choice, the, the, the following choices kind of bounce off the back of that, don't they? And yeah. It has, it, a, does, it has a ripple it effect. It does, and it can be powerful. And, you know, I I say often, I am more fulfilled in life now than I have ever been. And I'm grateful yeah. for the lessons that I've learned from Simon's death. That doesn't mean I'm glad he died, but, God, I just can't believe what it's given me in terms of mindset and opportunity yeah. and perspective and the, the, understanding what I'm capable of and going, do you know what, if I can do that, then what else can I do? And, and it keeps going and you keep growing. And, yeah. and that is a yeah. beautiful thing. But like you say, it's also awful. And I have never known despair and heartbreak and pain like it. You know, I'm not painting a pretty picture saying it's easy to do. It's not, but it's possible. It's the technicolor of life, isn't it? And I talk a lot to my kids about this, you know, because I think if you allow sadness and you sit in sadness, which I also think is a really, really important and healthy part of grieving. And we all numb the sadness and find ways of avoiding it. I do it now. And I know when I'm doing it as well. And I then have to sort of think, right, no, I need to allow this and I have to go and be sad. Um, But I think if if you can sit in the darkness it helps you sit in the light better. And I think it helps you sit in the light in a more fulfilled way because you're not necessarily then sitting in the light and going, well, what next? And what else am I searching for? And what about this? And, you know, but it's, it's hard because no one wants to sit in the dark and the culture that we live in, unfortunately is very much always about the light and, you know, going after the things that make you feel better and positive and numbing yourself and not always allowing yourself to just say, you know what, hey, I can't do this. And it's really hard. And I'm not going to be building anything. I'm not going to be girl bossing anything. I'm yeah. just going to sit here and cry. Yeah. And I might do that for a year or two or five. Yeah. And I might still do that. And I yeah. still do that. And it's okay, you know. And you have good days and you have bad days. And you have to learn to accept. I think one of the hardest parts, actually, of this whole thing that I still struggle around accepting is the fact that this is never going to go away and it will shape every single happy moment of our lives will always be tinged with sadness because a really big important person is not going to be there and that hurts and it sucks and it's rubbish and that's the part that is hard everything becomes bittersweet doesn't it you, you know everything yeah. that you do in life you know birthdays holidays graduations you know like my children are still young but i know when they marry or be both simultaneously if they if they marry they may not or when they graduate you know these big life moments and they have their own kids I, I, i'm going to be so ecstatic 
but I'm also going to be so sad and it's going to be griefy for them too because you know as they grow up and have more of an understanding around what it means to be in a relationship and what it means to be married and what it means to be a father they're going to go oh my gosh my dad had that and he died when he was 34 and that's going to be hard for them really hard and and I think you know that is one of the hardest things isn't it is is seeing that pain in your children in your kids yeah it's really hard you can't take it away you no. can you can sit with them through it but it's it is it's really hard really hard yeah so this faith you we were this chatting faith. a bit before about it and i said i said the word religious um i'm very naive on these things louise you'll have to to forgive me um no i don't think you're naive i think that's what i think that's what most people would say people probably would hear me speak and go oh you're really religious yeah yeah, yeah. and 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 you were like oh no i'm not religious i'm not religious I, 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 you know i don't like that term what what is it what's what does religious mean to you and why why do you, why do you feel you're not religious and it's it's more of a faith so for me religion is when I see people doing things and not understanding it. So you can go into so many churches, not just churches, but other, you know, a Gurdwara, a temple, a synagogue, and you can see people doing things that are culturally what is expected of them that have no association around the kind of the what, the why, the how, because it's just what they're expected to do. And I've got two close friends. I've got a close friend who's a, um, a Jewish a, a Jewish girl and been brought up in sort of like the Jewish culture and I've also got a really close friend who's Sikh and been brought up in the Sikh culture and we have such a laugh when I talk to them about stuff because I'm, I'm always like but why are you doing that but can you help me and it's not because I'm being passive aggressive it's just because I don't understand how you can do things if you don't really understand why you're doing them and my sort of I suppose animosity is probably the right word to the word religious is religious has the connotations of very high church people standing up and sitting down and having to say things in a really professional holy way and you know knowing when to perform certain things and when to you know be quiet and that absolutely does not describe my relationship with god my my relationship with god is a relationship so it's not religious it's relational and it is a faith in something bigger and you know does that look like you know me taking up practices absolutely because it's a way to form a relationship with him so for me you know do I try and pray every day yes do I do that no of course I don't it's like saying I'm going to exercise every day I pretend I'm going to do it but I don't so it's kind of like, you know, for me, religion is the is the way, not not the actual truth. And I think what's happened in our society is those two things have got really blurred and people think that religion is a faith. And there's so many people that you encounter, even in temples and churches and synagogues, who are so religious, but literally don't have a faith. I mean, I spoke to a guy the other day who goes to church. He said to me, oh, you know, I don't really believe I just really love the community and I was a bit like not like of course he can be there he's got as much right to be there as I have but I'm like really why do you bother to come like I just don't get it like it makes no sense to me um and for me you know having a real faith is I can be close to my God 
when I'm out, I feel closer to my God when I'm out running and walking and praying with my close friends than I often do in a massive kind of corporate worship setting. That's not to say that I don't do that. I do do that because it's a different way of, you know, being with God and getting to know him. But equally, it's, it's, it's not what dictates like my relationship with him. And that's true. I think that's true faith. It's, it's walking in the hope of something bigger and allowing that hope in something b- bigger to literally invade every part of your life. That is hard. It's like grief. It's like, you know, accepting all that. Okay. If you're going to let this truth be in every single part of who you are, in your relationships, in your friendships, in your attitude to money, in your attitude to career, in your attitude to sex, it's, it's, it is game changing and it is hard. And I do not have that down, but it's, yeah, that's what my faith is. How has that impacted the relationships that you have with, with family and friends? Have you, have you lost people over it? Has it been a, 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 a cause of disconnect for some because they just don't understand? So I, that's a, such a good question. And I have asked myself this question a lot. And I think what's very difficult for me to ascertain is, and I know that other people who are bereaved will definitely um, sympathize with this, is regardless of if I'd had a spiritual enlightenment, what I went through in life in terms of losing George is a moment in time where people show themselves and hide themselves. And the common theme that I have of talking to widows and widowers, regardless of their spiritual beliefs, is that you sadly lose relationships and friends along the way. And I have had people who have been unbelievable in terms of how they've shown up for me who were completely unexpected some of them were new friends that I found through church but some of them absolutely aren't people with faith at all and then there's also been the people that have kind of gone by the wayside that you kind of thought I thought that maybe you would be one of the people that would be my people and you're you're really not and I've kind of had to ask myself well is that because of the fact that I found this faith or is it because I lost my husband and you find that deeply uncomfortable and the honest answer is Karen I I don't know because obviously both of those things happened at the same time and that's really really hard so knowing okay yeah and because I became deeply spiritual and found God is hard for me to know I'm sure that there are people that I've lost because of that and that's part of it as well like it's it's really really difficult because ultimately you know if you have completely different values to people it does mean that you don't gravitate towards them in the same way because you just don't look at the world through the same rose-tinted or non-rose-tinted glasses. And do you think your faith has given you some comfort and acceptance around that in understanding that, you know, I I think there's there's two certainties in life. One is we're all going to die and two is that things are going to change as we go through life, like nothing stays the same, nothing, yeah. you know, and people yeah. are going to come and go. And and that's really hard for us. Change is very hard for us as, as human beings to adjust yeah. to. We don't like it. We feel unsettled. We think we have to cling on to everything forever. And that's how it always yeah. has to be. But in, in this acceptance, in this discovery of something bigger, have you gained that perspective and, and understanding that things do change, that we do evolve. And it's, it's given you some peace in that area as well that you're you're not you're not so affected by it in a negative way I suppose so I think that change is something that is really hard to get your head around regardless of if you have a faith or not I mean I used to work in the corporate world and I used to work um 
where I, in a place where I managed, you know, large teams of people. And we used to talk about something called the change curve a lot. If you don't know the change curve. It's based on Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's um, loss curve, isn't it? It's the same yeah. psychologist. And there's, you can pick holes in it. Pick holes in the Kubler-Ross um, stages of grief. And I've always known that change is really, really hard. And I don't think anything can prepare you for what the changes are and will be that you navigate once you lose the person that is your person. And I think that even if you have a faith, you still have to walk through that change. I think the difference that having a faith makes is it gives you something to bigger to to stand on and to hold on to. But equally, the part for me that has been quite uh, magical, actually, I'm going to use the word in terms of the discovery, has been the words of comfort that you can take as well from scripture, so from the Bible. And again, part of me, Karen, is it's like, who even am I? Like, am I even saying this? But I, just for background, so I did a degree in English, so I've always really liked reading and, you know, studied Shakespeare and everything at university. And kind of always found meaning in words and words is very much my love language. And I've been really, really surprised, really beautifully surprised by how much meaning I've found in some of the parts of the Bible. Like I, I, I struggle with the Bible and I still do at times. It's a very difficult book. It's hard to understand. It's hard to read. You can't read it like you sit down and read Harry Potter or Hope is Coming. You know, it's, it's, it's difficult and that takes work. But when you get to the parts that are the parts that really are in sync with where you're at in your life. And what I've learned is it's, you know, it's a book of books and there's stories in within, you know, the book that are always about different stages and places of life. And I was even reading actually last week, this, this like middle book of the Bible called Ecclesiastes. And I probably not even said that right. And it's called a time for everything. And it starts off with, you know, there's a time for everything. There's a time to mourn. There's a time to dance. There's a time for joy. There's a time to feel sad. There's a time to work. There's a time to rest. And actually what my faith has given me is, is this hope in something bigger. And also it's given me kind of access into this world of stories where I can things the, the human condition and how people have then navigated that and whether or not you think that's the truth I mean who knows I, I still struggle with well how did that actually get written you know but equally we all know that stories are deeply deeply helpful because I think for people to feel seen and known and kind of go okay yeah gosh you went through that too so that just kind of makes it easier which is you know one of your outworkings of this podcast it's helping people feel seen and feel known and that for me has been really helpful to kind of just have that connection to, to stories from the past of people that have lived through what I've lived through. But then equally, the kind of flip side of, of this is then, you know, stories of the now that I find through Instagram. I've got such an incredible community of bereaved people that I've met through social media. Um, and knowing them and knowing their stories is helpful too, because it gives you that feeling of I'm not alone. 100%. And I think... In grief, if we can learn to be open-minded, open-hearted, there is so much for us to take in all all different areas, whether that's in, in different um, spiritualities, different religions, uh, different books, different stories, different you know perspectives of the world from people. You may not agree with all of it. You may not 
take all of it as your truth. But there will be something in there that touches your heart, that resonates, that makes you think a little bit deeper. And you go, I like that. That makes me feel good. I'm going to take that and I'm going to run with it. But you've got to get out there and explore a little bit and and discover these things. They don't just land in your lap. And this is what I always try and encourage widows to do is go out, try something different, try something new, because you never know what you're going to discover that's going to help you on your journey. And just be open-minded, be open-hearted. So good. Um, Because we're so closed. We're closed as people. You you know, we're judgmental, we're critical. Um, Somebody says something about religion and it's not our religion or belief system. We go, oh, no, oh, no. And it's like... Yeah, question yeah. your own stories, question your own belief systems, because where do they come from? Are they are they based in in something that makes you feel good? Have they been born out of a, a good experience in your life or have you just taken it from somebody else, actually? And it's it's keeping you in a place of discomfort. I've kind of been on this voyage of discovery. I mean, that sounds so cheesy, doesn't it? But it's like, you know, and I, I actually even intentionally, and I was in a very um, lucky place. I'm very mindful of this. I was able to do this, but I took two years out of my corporate job to do just that because I just thought if I stay in this job, I'm going to be, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to be in my fifties and my kids are going to be teenagers. And I'm kind of just going to just rinse repeated, trying to live the version of my life that would have been the version of my life if George hadn't died. And I'm not going to have had the time or the headspace to be open and explore new things. And my biggest, biggest, biggest piece of advice and encouragement to anyone who's been bereaved is don't do anything reckless. Don't make stupid big decisions, you know, when you're in a place of deep, deep sadness, but equally do be open and do try because, you know, not everything that I've tried since I've become a widow has stuck. I've had some few crazy ideas around hobbies and all sorts of other things. But hey, look, you know, I wrote a book and I never thought I'd do that. And it's it's interesting if you kind of just put yourself out there, what you what you then sometimes get back. And it is people say that and it sounds so trite. And also I don't underestimate the amount of courage and bravery that takes when your courage and bravery has been basically smashed to smithereens. But the one thing I would say and it is a line from the Bible, it's seek and you will find. Like if you look, if you seek, like you will find. If you're looking and you keep banging on doors, like eventually what you're looking for will come. But I think the problem is, is that we always think it should be now. And actually life's, life, life is, is long and, and sometimes you have to wait as well. And that's really hard. Yeah, um, that's, um, I yeah. love that. I love that message. And, and I think it's it's important in life and not just in grief. And, you know, I'm still doing that now. Like you, I'm, you know, in my seventh year. And this year is, you know, my promise to myself is to get out there more and to seek more because I want more. And, and, I, and it's not just mm. going to come and find me. So I have been brave and I've gone out and I've gone to new places and met new people. And I'm c- going to continue doing these things because life Yes, it's tragic and it's heartbreaking and awful things happen, but it's also beautiful and it's a gift and there is so much good out there and there are wonderful people and wonderful experiences. And as you move through your grief, you you learn that, you see that more and, and you're able to, to put yourself out there 
to discover these. So I think that's a really lovely message to end on, Louise. Thank you so much. And and, and my message is to go and read Louise's book. <laughs> um, Hope is Coming. It's a true story of grief and gratitude. It really is. You have a beautiful way of writing. You, can, you know, it makes sense when you say oh, about... You. Um, you know, studying English and, and, and reading a lot. The, the way you write and how you were able to get across your feelings, your thought, and you're so brave. You, you know, there were things in there that you wrote. You know, you said earlier about, you know, when you knew George was, was going to die and you were thinking about how can I help him and you were looking under all these rocks. And, you know, you were thinking about taking him to places where, where he could end his own life and different things. I mean, one of them, you know, you said you'd even thought about, right, can I help him? Can I do something to help him end his life? Yeah. It's just so yeah. powerful because not many people would be comfortable saying that out loud. And I think that's so brave and so courageous. And that part of the book alone, I think, for people that are or have been looking after somebody lost somebody through a terminal illness will help them see okay I'm not a bad person and that's why I wrote the book like I just felt so I felt like I'd been given such peace and understanding around George's death and I just thought if I can give anyone else peace and understanding in in death that's what I want to do and it's not about oh gosh it's absolutely not about you know I've got this faith and you've got to have it too that's absolutely not the reason I wrote my book it's just more, this is what happened to me and this is the story I'm going to tell. And, you know, I wish that I'd read a story like this because I think it would have helped me. And that's the power in storytelling, isn't it, right? You know, 100%. so much power in storytelling. And there's, there's, there's a lot of lovely little tips and tools and, and, and ideas in here to help people navigate their grief and, and support themselves through it, which I, I think are wonderful. It's a really, it's beautiful. Like I say, I haven't read it all yet, but I am hooked. <laughs> and I, it's beautiful to read. So thank you, Louise. Obviously, I will put a, a link to the book in, in the show notes. So um, if anybody wants to, to go and purchase it, I thoroughly highly recommend that you do so it's it's wonderful you can even have my dulcet tones reading it to you if you want ah. i did an audio book as well so wonderful yeah. wonderful but thank you so much louise it's been I, I could sit here and talk to i haven't got through half the things i wanted to talk to you about um which sides of, of a great conversation um you really are very easy and and lovely to talk to so thank you for joining us today thank you for having me Thank you so much for listening to The Widow Podcast with me, Karen Sutton. If you would like to be part of a supportive community of people who understand your grief, come and join my free Facebook group, Widowed and Rising. And make sure you tune in to the next episode of The Widow Podcast. Podcast.